invite you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, not one of the uh, more well-known psalms, and yet um, full of just wonderful, rich truth, as David calls the church to sing and then gives us reasons uh, for that singing. Psalm 33, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it and follow along as we go through the psalm uh, this evening. Psalm 33, let's begin at verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God, this uh, is your beautiful, inspired, inerrant word, and we come now trembling. Uh, Lord, we would not want to Dismiss your word as just religious chatter, but Lord, hear you speak to us in, in ways that we can hear and, and receive and be blessed and built up in the faith. And so God, please give your spirit uh, to the preaching of the word tonight and to the hearing of it, and we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 33 is a song as the Psalter, the Psalter is a collection of songs meant to be sung, and it's a song about singing. It's a song specifically about the singing of of the church, Uh, the the sort of singing that God delights in, and and the the, the reasons that motivate that sort of singing. Um, I was asked just recently, it's a question that I've been asked from time to time, uh, what do I love about Harvest, and what, what, um, what sort of makes... Uh, harvest a special place. And one of the things I, I uh, always say is that, well, it, um, the people love to sing. Uh, the people love to, um, 
to praise the Lord boisterously. This is something that was true of Harvest when, when I, uh, the very first service back in 1994, uh, when we were meeting at the school and I was asked to preach. I had no idea that Harvest existed. And um, I, I went and I preached. And I remember coming home and, and saying to Joanne, who's home with the kids, um, those, those people really love to sing. And that's been a trait that God has blessed us with all the years uh, since. It, uh, you can tell a lot uh, about a church uh, by the way that they participate or don't participate in the singing. It's one of the, um, the things that just evidences, are these people glad in their God? And uh, that's, of course, what Psalm 33 calls us to. There's a unique power and vibrant uh, congregational singing as God's people together with one voice uh, worship Him and respond to the truth of of God, the, the the glory of what He's done. It's one of the the, the best, um, most heavenly experiences that you can have, really, on earth. Have you ever just sensed when you're uh, when the singing is vibrant and strong that this is probably a foretaste of of heaven when men and women and, and uh, boys and girls from every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered and worshiping the Lord with one voice. What an amazing experience uh, that will be. This is also just highlights one of the tragedies of uh, contemporary worship as it's uh, more and more becoming common for churches not to sing, uh, for churches to watch people up front do the singing. This is, it doesn't, you can look online and, and just find articles after articles bemoaning the fact that um, that congregational singing is just is dying out as, as, uh, as an art. That, of course, had happened also before the Reformation, where the, uh, the religious officials, the priests, the Roman Catholic priests, they took care of the worship, and the congregation was just there to sort of uh, watch. In fact, the worship was done in Latin, so most of the people didn't know um, a lot of what was going on anyway. But the, the, the important thing was what was happening up front, and, and you were just uh, called to... Uh, Right? The, the people were just there to observe. Well, um, that is not what uh, God-honoring worship looks like, where, where um, somebody performs and then the rest just receive. We are together in worship, coming together and uh, coming before our Lord. And one of the ways we do that is in song. Uh, I read this, be, this morning from David Mathis, Habits of Grace, and he just talks about the power of corporate worship. Uh, remember, he says, we often come into corporate worship feeling a sense of spiritual fog. And, and after a long week, I'm sure you felt that, that your, your spiritual senses aren't right. You sense that you're, you're not, um, there, there's tumult in, in, inside. There's, there's just confusion and weariness. And the math says we need to clear our heads, recalibrate our spirits, and jumpstart our slow hearts. Martin Luther found corporate worship to be a powerful um, means of awakening his spiritual fire. He says, when I'm at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. I, I hope you've had that experience. I hope Sunday after Sunday you sense uh, the fire of love for God and, and trust in God just breaking through. That maybe you started this day spiritually dry and um, emotionally worn out, somewhat dead in your heart, but, but as you worship the Lord, as the word of God is read and the songs are sung and the sacraments are administered, uh, the word is preached. You just, you just find your heart melting and warming to the truth of God, sometimes with, with great joy, sometimes with tears running down your face. 
That's what God intends to do in the worship of his people. Well, here in Psalm 33, David is writing a psalm, and uh, just two main points. First, the call to praise, and then the reasons for praise. The call to praise, verses 1 through 3, and then the reasons for praise, and then uh, the, the wonderful conclusion, verses um, Excuse me, just lost my place, verses 20 through 22. So that, that's just a basic outline if you're taking notes tonight. The call to praise in verses 1 through 3, um, we've noted before that one of the unique things about Christians is that Christians sing in, in a way that no other religion does. Uh, that when Christians get together to worship, they sing. I remember reading an article several years ago where an unbelieving person had been invited to church, and so he went with his friend, and uh, he had a blog, and on his blog post, he talked about this experience and how, the, how all these people of different ages, they, just, they sang, they sang a lot. And it struck him as, as odd. We, we hear music, of course, in our culture. You can't, in a sense, escape music. Um, because God has is, is created it as a critical, essential part of, of, of creation. But, but this, this thing of people coming together and speaking specific biblical truths in song and clearly enjoying it is, is something strange. And he asked on his blog, why do Christians sing? And it was fun just list, looking at some of the responses to that. Well, Christians sing because our God has um, created us with by uh, our new birth, with, with this desire to sing. Creation, I mean, redemption is a story of singing all the way through from the morning stars who sang at creation and the, the Israelites, remember, sang at the Red Sea that uh, when, when God triumphed over Pharaoh. You have the songs of David here in the Psalms. You got the angels singing the announcement of Jesus' birth. The disciples in Christ singing a hymn after the Last Supper. Paul and Silas singing in prison. The saints gathered around the throne of God singing in heaven. There's just songs throughout the Bible. Christians sing because we've been called to sing. And we've been, we have the most reasons to sing. So David begins calling specifically Christians to sing. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous God's people are called to sing. This is, um, this is a call for the congregation. And, and why? Well, because it befits them, David said. It is, it's fitting. It's, it's appropriate. It's right. Psalm 147. Pray, we sang that this, the, earlier in the service. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing unto our God. Tis right and pleasant for his saints to sound his praise abroad. It's... it's uh, it's fitting, you see, because we are the most obligated of everyone. As the recipients of the best of God's mercies, uh, no one has a greater responsibility than a Christian. No one has a greater reason. Angels in heaven do not have um, greater reasons to sing than we do, who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, brought out of bondage and darkness and death into the light and life of our Lord. As the hymn says, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing? Praise befits the righteous. It is, it is fitting. In fact, on the flip side of the coin, you could say silence would be shameful. 
Boys and girls, if someone gave you something really important, really special, maybe a lot of money or uh, your favorite toy, something that you really love, boys and girls, um, and you didn't say anything in response, you sense that wouldn't be right. If you didn't say thank you, if, if someone asked, said, wow, it's a really nice uh, toy you got there, who gave that to you? And you didn't say anything. You refused to give respect or appreciation or gratitude or, or honor to the person who gave you the gift. That'd just be shameful. Well, it's the same for a Christian. That's what David is talking about. It's, it's befitting. It's fitting for the believer. John Calvin says this. He says, since God, by his daily benefits, furnishes us with much cause for celebrating his glory, and since his boundless goodness is laid up as a peculiar treasure for us, it would be disgraceful and utterly unreasonable for us to be silent in the praises of God. It's right that we sing. We should, of all people, sing to the Lord. Well, what kind of songs does God like? How should we sing? That's taken up in verses 2 and 3. And we could make this its own a sermon. Uh, some have, I've seen have made this a sermon series. Because um, with worship wars going on, this is a common conversation. What, what sorts of songs are appropriate? What is, God, um, what is God like? Well, David gives us some clues here in Psalm 33. Uh, uh, verse 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Uh, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This seems to be accompanied music. Now, there's a whole discussion about that. In fact, if you read Calvin, he has no time whatsoever for instruments in worship service. And in fact, it basically equates, um, you know, that what David's talking about here is Old Testament worship, temple worship, the temple's destroyed, uh, and that to have an instrument in worship is, is really the same thing as just having Old Testament sacrifices in worship. Um, I, dis, I disagree with John Calvin on that. <laughs> I think um, in, in his historical context and seeing what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church is, is battling to restore true worship, worship um, to the church. But um, David clearly is comfortable with praising the Lord with instruments. That music is accompanied. And um, so uh, I think we have biblical warrant. For doing, for doing this. So, but, but here's the things I really would like you to notice. A sing to him a new song. What, what does that mean? I remember as a boy uh, growing up in a uh, good, solid, reformed church and, and um, singing, sing a new song to Jehovah for like the thousandth time. And I thought, why don't we sing like a new song? <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. We're just singing all the same old songs. Well, um, I wasn't uh, really theologically trained at that time, but, the, but, the, but the, there was something here. What does it mean to sing a new song? Uh, it's, it's spoken of several times in the psalm. Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 147, uh, Psalm 40, verse 3. Uh, he put a new song in my mouth. Well, what is a new song? Well, if, you, if you look at the, um, the way the Bible uses just this word new, um, it can mean uh, it, its primary meaning seems to be fresh. So um, it's not necessarily new as opposed to something that's old, but, but new in the sense that something is fresh. It's a, you, you move into a new house. Maybe not necessarily newly constructed, but it's new for you. Um, new mercies every morning. That's, uh, that's, the, that's the word. 
God's mercies are new every morning. It doesn't mean it's new as opposed to what it was yesterday. It's, a, it's, it's the same mercy, but it's fresh this morning. It's, 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 it's fresh and, and new to us. And so you, um, there's the emphasis here, I think, are, we can maybe go two aspects of it. What, a new song is, um, it is a new something, something that hasn't existed before. So in the New Testament, uh, new tongues, uh, a new name. God gives people a new name. Uh, they sing a new song, Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Uh, and that, that shouldn't frighten us. Uh, you find in church history, whenever there's a movement of the Spirit of God, in a particular special way, there's an outburst of new, of new singing, of new songs. Some good, some not so good. And the church sort of weeds through them to find out which, which are most uh, biblical and most helpful for building up the church. But new songs just seem to be an important part of people giving expression to what God is doing. David is, is writing new songs. And, and, and they're being incorporated into the worship of Israel. People don't say, well, we, we don't want new songs. We like the old songs. These aren't, David's, Psalm 33 isn't meant to replace, right, all that God has given, but, but these are new expressions of um, fresh experiences of the grace of God. You find it throughout church history. The Reformation was a time of, uh, where, where people were set to work writing songs, most of them based on the Psalms, obviously. But that's, that's what they were doing. In the Great Awakening, 1800s, uh, you find the same thing. Uh, Charles Wesley is writing new songs, and John Newton and Cooper are all writing these, these songs that we still sing today. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. That's a, that's a fresh expression in, in that day of, of uh, the grace of God. Matthew Henry, clearly not part of the worship wars, a, a, a commentator from years past, says this, we must sing a new song, newly composed upon every special occasion, with, uh, sing with new affections, which makes the songs new, through the wor- though the words may have been used before, and, keep- and keeping them from growing threadbare. The idea seems to be that a new song takes uh, old gospel truth, biblical truth, and, and puts that in a way that, that is fresh for us, and-, and maybe to a tune that's fresh for us, so that we sing it with a fresh experience. Fresh zeal. Spurgeon says this, Let us not present old worn out praise, but put life and soul and heart into every song since we have new mercies every day. I think when, uh, when a congregation is experiencing uh, freshly God's grace, not, not, this isn't about innovation. This is, this is about fresh experiences week after week of the goodness of God and, and the love of God. It, it, we're, we're continually getting more uh, insight into the ways of God and the kindness of God, the greatness of God, and being moved more and more by the love of God. And, and, it, and it makes us want to sing with, with a fresh zeal. And when a new song comes along that, that matches that fresh zeal, we, we take up that new song with, with vigor. <clears throat> I think of psalms like uh, Man of Sorrows uh, that we have come to love, or He Will Hold Me Fast. Why, why does that resonate with our hearts? It's the same old truth, 
as great as thy faithfulness in many ways, but this idea that, that, that God will hold us fast in a tune that's singable, and that becomes rich and meaningful for us. That's what David is, is saying. Sing a new song. You know in Revelation chapter 5 and 14, uh, the, 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 the saints in heaven, the angels, they sang a new song. And in five, uh, we're not sure exactly if it was a, a, new, a newly composed song or just with, with fresh experience of the grace of God. I think it's a fresh experience of God's grace as they, as they shout, worthy is the lamb who was slain for you. You have purchased men with your blood. Worthy is the lamb. Worth, I think it, now as they gather around the throne, they're overwhelmed by the, the worth and the glory of Christ. In Revelation chapter 14, they sang a new song, and it says that no one was able to learn that song except 144,000. In other words, only those who knew Jesus could get the, the song. They didn't know how to sing it otherwise, you see, because it's a spiritual song, and spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. Sing a new song, Harvest. Sing, sing with, with fresh zeal, fresh vigor, whether it's a song that we've been singing for ages uh, or, or whether it's a song that we, we haven't heard before. Sing it to the Lord. And then, secondly, enthusiastically, uh, David says uh, that we're to sing with, with loud shouts. Now, not, not every song is, has, has that same exuberance. There are songs of, psalms of confession. God, be merciful to me. On thy grace, I rest my plea. But we, don't, we don't sing that with loud shouts. Uh, some, some certain prayers, good shepherd of my soul, come dwell within me. But, but as David is thinking here specifically about psalms of praise, it, they're, they're meant to be exuberant. There's meant to be real adoration. One of God's complaints, of course, about Israel of old in Isaiah chapter 29, uh, God says, these people honor me with their mouth, but, but their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, they've been taught, you need to fear the Lord. You need to write it's a commandment. You better, you better fear the Lord, and, and that's going to look burr, burr, burr like this. Um, and so people come, and they, they submit to the commandment, but not in their heart. There's not a fear and love and awe and reverence and, and delight in God in, in their heart. It, 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 was just, it was just a commandment, a religious rule that, they, that this is how you're supposed to act in church. But God says, that, I don't want that. He, he, he despises that. David says that the worship that honors the Lord is, is, is exuberant. We, we sing with, with, with loud singing, loud shouts, because enthusiasm communicates, you see, how we really ought to feel about the greatness and goodness and glory and kindness and love of God. That it moves us. We're delighted in the glory of our God. And then David says, do it skillfully. Uh, play skillfully. Uh, he doesn't tell us exactly how skillfully. Play skillfully on the strings and with loud shouts. But, but it's, um, I think it, it's easy to see that David thinks that God is worthy of skillful music. Not just somebody throwing something together. Spurgeon again says this. It is wretched to hear God praised in a slovenly manner. Let us not offer him limping rhymes set to harsh tunes and growled out by discordant voices. We should, we should strive. That's one of the reasons I love to, uh, to do everything we can to keep four-part harmony. Now, it's not in the Bible, but it, it, it's, it's beautiful music. 
when we have the bass and the tenor and the alto and the soprano. And it's all blending together in beautiful harmony. It's, it, it is, it is, it's beautiful music, and it's done skillfully, and, and it clearly is, it is pleasing to God. Parents, teach your children how to sing parts. I remember probably 13 years old and at the piano being taught how to sing the tenor part. Near, still near, I'm almost sure, is the song. No, no, it was Jesus, lover of my soul. That's what it was. And that's where I learned to sing the tenor part. That's, that matters. Let, let's, let's sing skillfully to the Lord. David, uh, if you remember, made, made careful preparations for exactly this kind of singing. When he made plans for the temple, he also um, appointed 4,000 musicians, singers and instrumentalists, 4,000 for the worship of the temple and, 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 and even set up a musical school so that the young people could be trained up in music. So they could participate when they were ready in the worship of the church. And he set up a rotating schedule. So there were always musicians and music at the temple. God loves music. He loves the music, the worship of his people. And David then gives us reasons to praise God, to, to, to sing to him. Of course, there are 10,000 reasons. David mentions some. I just want you to notice, these are not generic ideas, sort of God is great, he's good, he's loving. Uh, these are very specific things that, that, that David wants to point us to, and, and he, he, he fleshes them out a bit. There are, the Bible gives us concrete words and actions and historical occasions where God has revealed himself. And, and, and so David just, just calls us to remember these things here. And I'll just quickly go through these. Notice first the word of the Lord, verses of, of, of 4 and following. It reveals his character. If you have your Bible, it'll be helpful for you to just follow along. The word of God reveals his character. Notice the character words in verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You could just meditate just on those two verses and, and have a deepening sense of the character of God that would motivate you when you sing to him. Praise God that his word is upright and that everything he, he does is done in faithfulness. There's no fickleness. There's no turning. When he promises, it takes place. And he loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his steadfast love. You see the seasons changing. That's the love of God for his creation. You, you see the, the, the birds out singing and building their nests and, and the new baby uh, deer being born and the turkeys running around and, and farmers planting their fields. And the, what, why, why do they spend all that money putting all that seed and fertilizer into the ground? Because they, they just assume, they believe that God's going to be faithful and it's going to grow. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, whether people realize it or not. Then, then David talks about how it reveals his power, that God created everything with the word of his mouth. He just spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. David then points that, that the whole world should fear this God, should revere him. He's not a tribal deity. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We don't have to apologize to go to our neighbors and ask them to worship God. They ought to. 
He's the God that created them. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Verses 10 and 11 speaks of the universal rule and reign of Christ. And notice the play of the counsels and plans of men and the counsel and plans of God. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. You can see that played out in newspapers every day, right? The people that worked hard to create the European Union. We're not planning on a Brexit. Uh, it was not in the playbook. It was not the, it was not the plan. There are a lot of people who were not planning for our current administration. Uh, and, and our current administration undoubtedly is making plans that, uh, the, Lord is, that the Lord's got this. Right? He, um, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations that's good news for us. God is universally sovereign Lord. And that leads to the core truth of the psalm. Verse 12, blessed or happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people that he has chosen as his heritage. God has chosen people to be his, his nation, his people, his heritage. And it's not the United States of America. I can't tell you. If you just uh, type this in, you'll be stunned at how many uh, people take this, this uh, text and use it to refer to the United States of America. Uh, we are, are not the people that God has chosen as Americans. The church is the people God has chosen. Uh, the, per- the people that are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's chosen us to sing praises to him as his blood-bought people. So Peter says in 1 uh, Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Blessed, happy. Are you happy? I have to confess that far too often I'm not happy. My wife reminds me of this, and I am thankful for it somewhere deep down in my heart. I, we should be happy Christians. We should be happy Christians. Blessed, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Our faces and our, our attitudes and actions should reflect that truth. Let this be on your heart this week. We honor God with happiness in him, even in the trials of life. David goes on to speak about the eye of the Lord. Verses 13 and following. And notice, notice again, David's pointing out this is not a tribal deity. Notice all the uses of the word all. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of mankind. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. God is God over the whole world. And everyone then owes him worship and love and obedience. God knows exactly what's taking place. And he's not just watching. He's sovereignly ruling. David points out the king is not saved by his great army. Well, what's he saved by then? Well, he's going to get to that in a moment. But it's not his army. A warrior is not delivered by his strength. A war horse is a false hope for salvation. 
and its great might cannot rescue. It's a great reminder, again, to American Christians who, who are used to being a superpower. And we like counting our, our aircraft carriers and, and hearing about the ability of our fighter pilots and jets and, and the, the, the superior technology. I just enjoy reading about that kind of stuff. But, but that's not what we're going to be saved by. It's a false hope. When God is, uh, whenever it is that he's determined that America is, is no longer going to be a superpower, then at that moment, America will no longer be a superpower. And we just need to remember that. Uh, and we are not saved by our military. If you just, if you, again, if you just read some, some history, this is, a, this is a great lesson. Just go through history and look at, look at uh, the, the great military power of Hitler. Hitler should have been, he should have ruled the world. His military was that advanced. But, but, but it all came crashing down. Why? Well, because God is the one at work. God, God intervenes at Dunkirk when there's 40,000 men on the beaches. And, 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 and God puts fear into Hitler's heart so he doesn't dare attack when all of his, his military officers are begging him to finish off the British army. And he doesn't. And then he gets this, this idea to go, let, let's attack Soviet Union. Let's, let's, let's go march so that we're stuck out there in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of winter, and, and it's the worst winter that they've had for decades. Man doesn't decide these things. God decides these things. And God rules over his own people, verse 18 and 19. You see, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. He sees all the children of mankind, but his eye is on his children. He cares for his children. Isn't that a wonderful thought? God knows the names of everyone in the world. He, he knows the names of all the stars. But, but, but God specifically knows your name. We saw just recently that he's called you by your name. He protects you. As you revere him, as you, as you fear him, as you hope in his steadfast love, he promises to deliver you, even if, if, it, if it's going to involve you dying, right? Not a hair from your head, Jesus said in, Matthew 20, in Luke 21, is going to be harmed. Not a hair from your head is going to be harmed. Even when you're persecuted to death, God is caring for you. You, you, you cannot be lost. And so what do we do with that? Well, we trust in him, and that's the conclusion. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Not our bank account, not our investments, not our, our gifts, our abilities, not our, our work ethic, not, not uh, our relationships or, or, or hopes in those areas, not our health, N nothing else, not our family. He, God, is our help and our shield. And we're going to wait for him, wait on him. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Do you see how the gladness of a, of a believer is, is that we can absolutely trust everything into the name of the Lord. One of my, the best things that a good friend of mine, Doug Rosine, taught me is when I would start complaining about something, he would say, do you think we could trust the Lord with that? Yeah, I suppose we could. Yeah, we could trust the Lord with that. So then we really don't need to complain about it, do we? We don't need to be anxious about it. We could, we could take that and we could cast that anxiety on him because he cares for us. 
Our heart is glad in him. And then this final prayer, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Let your steadfast love be upon us as we hope in you. A, a Christian is someone who wants to know and taste the love of God for them. And, and we have such great reasons to believe this is possible. Uh, God has, has manifested his, stead, his steadfast love, not just in caring for us in general, general ways, but in saving us by, the, by sending his own son, Jesus Christ. If, if David has reasons to sing, how much more do we have reasons to sing? And so our waiting and trusting and hoping that you see here in verses 20 through 22, it's all about Jesus. We wait for him, don't we? You take your worries to Jesus. You take your cares to Jesus. And you wait for, for his care and you wait for his return. We, we just lean on him. We trust in Jesus. We hope in Jesus. A Christian is someone who's radically Christ-centered. And we're learning to think about our life in terms of Jesus. We roll out of bed in the morning. We say, Jesus, let me, let me serve you today and follow you today and love you today and, and trust you today and, and be glad in you today, Jesus. And we go to bed and we, we say, thank you, Jesus, for your kindness. And thank you, Jesus, for protecting me. Thank you, Jesus, for not letting me fall from the faith today. Thank you for every time that I was able to say no to temptation. Thank you that you forgive me for every time I said yes. And we live our life trusting in Jesus. We hope in him. And people who live that way are people who sing. They sing. They're glad in their God. Are you? Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you for these, these songs that call us to delight in you, to be glad in you, to sing to you with loud shouts. Lord, of, of all the people in the world, no one should be happier than, than we. And I just confess, Lord, we so often are anxious and weighed down with worries and cares. And, and Lord, life is difficult at times, sometimes crushingly so. And yet, oh, God, I thank you that, that even in our sorrow, you put a new song in our mouth. We have fresh experiences of your kindness, your care, your compassion. And Father, you know, you know the hearts of your people tonight. I pray that, Lord, more and more we would wait for Jesus and we would, we would hope in him. We would trust in him and find, Lord, that you are a faithful God. Your love is steadfast. Your power is sufficient. That we are safe in your care. And then, Lord, teach us to sing at home and in our cars, to sing at work, to sing when we come and worship you. That, Lord, our lives would be marked by a glad song as we have fresh experiences of your grace and goodness to us, Lord, then then put a new song in our mouth and may we, may we bellow it out with joy and gladness to you, our living, loving, heavenly Father. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.